Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, Part 8, Chapter 5, Happy 100 Year Anniversary. Swims at the moment, she says, Thomas demonstrates that not only was he willing to cross an ethical business line, but also he is a terrible father. This leads me to wonder if Junior also baited Christian as well, as not measuring up, when he was young, resulting in physical ailments and his westral ways as an adult. We already know the pressure he exerted on Tony to marry a man who repulsed her, and look how that turned out. And Thomas has collapsed under the pressure, I believe, of his dead father's expectations, so Junior's motto thus far becomes heavy with irony. My son shows zeal for each day's affairs of business, but only for such that make for a peaceful night's sleep. Awful scene when... um, his son tried to read, recite the um, the poem, and he was so nasty. It was really um, really just lost all respect for for Tom as a character, didn't we? In that moment, <coughs> I'm not well still, guys. So I'm going to read you the next chapter. Um, actually, I'll go through a couple more comments. Techrific says, a hundred years of the firm Buttonbrook and it all comes down to that little bit of hail, that little bit of hail. Is this the end of the firm or merely the beginning of the end of the firm? What was supposed to save them will in the end sink them. Yeah, well, it's another, what was it, 30,000 that he spent on that? So I don't think that's enough to sink them. But, you know, he was definitely relying on the profit from that rather than losing that extra 30,000. So... I think it's just a chunk out of an already dwindling fortune. Zox says, The writing is so good here. And in the previous chapter, I did a 180 on this book. I didn't like it at the start. Yeah. Um, very different. I, um... I don't know if I would say, I don't know if I felt like it was better, to be honest. Because I felt like there was just heaps, heaps of unnecessary description in the last few chapters. And um, that's something that always bothers me. If it doesn't really add anything, it's just sentences being... Or not even sentences, just passages being added or lengthened just for the sake of making the passage longer. And I really... I find that irritating. Um, there was a sentence in the penultimate chapter, which was something like, you know, he he had an egg or something like that. And... Yeah, just things where it's like, well, what, what, what does that add to the story? What, why is it there? The previous couple of chapters for me had just so much description. One of them had like a page of names of the people who are at the party and it's just not a good way for me to present characters it's just like a list of names um but then also the descriptiveness is also it's in a weird spot you know like you expect this you know you dial up the descriptiveness of it of your writing during scenes of sort of exposition or introduction usually at the beginning of the book you might be a little bit extra descriptive to help people find their bearings help people uh, get get their head around who everyone is and what the what their what their mansion looks like you know the lay of the land that kind of thing 
So early on, I think, is the time to try to sneak a little bit of extra description in. But then again, you don't want to bog down the story with description too early on because you also want to jump straight into the action. So it's a bit of a balancing act for me to be 500 or so pages into the book and then suddenly you've just dialed up the descriptiveness. Um, it was quite jarring. And whether or not the writing is better or worse, I, I think it's different in the last few chapters. And for me, that's very jarring. And again, another sign of poor editing is you shouldn't be able to discern a noticeable difference in writing style from one chapter to the next. I think that's that's poor, you know. So I have my gripes with it. But I can also see why you might find it's better because it is sort of more visceral, I guess. you can. You, I'm definitely finding I can envision what's happening better recently. Anywho, um, chapter six. Oh, Bark, Sebastian Bark, dear lady, cried Edmund Furl, her Edmund Furl, the organist of St. Mary's, as he strode up and down the salon with great activity, while Gerda, smiling her head on her hand, sat at the piano, and Hanno listened from a big chair, his hands clasped round his knees. Certainly, as you say, it was he through whom the victory was achieved by harmony over counterpoint. He invented modern harmony, assuredly, but how... Need I tell you, by a progressive development of the contrapunctual style. You know it as well as I do. Harmony? Ah, no, by no means. Counterpoint, my dear lady, counterpoint. Whither I ask you, would experiments in harmony have led? While I have breath to speak, I will warn you against mere experiments in harmony. (coughs) His zeal, as he spoke, was great, and he gave it free rein. For he felt at home in the house. Every Wednesday afternoon there appeared on the threshold his bulky, square, high-shouldered figure in a coffee-coloured coat whereof the skirts hung down over his knees. While awaiting his partner, he would open lovingly the Bechstein grand piano, arrange the violin parts on the stand, and then prelude a little softly and artistically with his head sunk in high contentment on one shoulder. An astonishing growth of hair, a wilderness of tight little curls, red-brown mixed with grey, made his head look big and heavy, though it was poised easily upon a long neck with an extremely large Adam's apple that showed above his low collar. The straight, bunchy moustaches of the same colour as the hair were more prominent than the small snub nose. His eyes were brown and bright, with puffs of flesh beneath them. When he played, they looked as though their gaze passed through whatever he whatever was in their way and rested on the other side. His face was not striking, but it had at least the stamp of a strong and lively intelligence. His eyelids were usually half-drooped, and he had a way of relaxing his lower jaw without opening his mouth, which gave him a flabby, resigned expression like that sometimes seen on the face of a sleeping person. The softness of his outward seeming, however, contrasted strongly with the actual strength and self-respect of his character. Edmund Furl was an organist of no small repute, who, whose reputation for contra, contrapunctual learning was not confined within the walls of his native town. His little book on church music was recommended for private study in several conservatories, and his figures and chorals were played now and then where an organ sounded to the glory of God. These compositions, as well as the voluntaries he played on Sundays at St. Mary's, were flawless, impeccable, full of the relentless, severe logicality of the strings that's 
Such beauty as they had was not of this earth, and made no appeal to the ordinary layman's human feeling. What spoke in them, what glorious triumphed in them, was a technique amounting to an ascetic religion, a technique elevated to a lofty sacrament to the absolute end in itself. Edmund Furl had small use for the pleasant and the agreeable, and spoke of melody, it must be confessed, in a slight, in slighting terms, but he was no dry pedant with notwithstanding. He would utter the same of Palestrina in the most dogmatic or inspiring tone, but when, while he made his instrument give out a succession of archaistic virtuosities, his face would go be all aglow with feeling, with rapt enthusiasm, and his gaze would rest upon the distance, as though he saw there the ultimate logicality of all events issuing in reality. This was the musician's look, vague and vacant precisely because it abode in the kingdom of a purer, profounder, more absolute logic than that which shapes our verbal conceptions and thoughts. His hands were large and soft, apparently boneless and covered with freckles. His voice, when he greeted Gerda Bottenbrook with low and hollow, as though a bite was stuck in his throat, Good morning, honoured lady. He rose a little from the seat, bowed, and respectfully took his hand. She offered while with his own left he struck the fifths of the piano so firmly and clear that she seized her Stradivarius and began to tune the strings with practised ear. The G minor concerto of Bach, her fool, the whole adagio still goes badly, I think. And the organist began to play, but hardly were the first chords struck when it invariably happened that the corridor door would open gently, and without a sound, little Johann would steal across the carpet to an easy chair where he would sit, his hands clasped round his knees, motionless and listen to the music and the conversation. Well, Hanno, so you want a little taste of music, do you? said Gerda in a pause, and looked at her son with her shadowy eyes, in which the music had kindled a soft radiance. Then he would stand up and put out his hand to her furl with a silent bow, and her furl would stroke with gentle affection the soft, light brown hair that hung gracefully about brow and temples. Listen now, my child, he would say, with mild impressiveness, and the boy would look at the Adam's apple that went up and down as the organist spoke, and then back to his place with the quick, light steps, as though he could hardly wait for the music to begin again. They played a movement of Hayden, some pages of Mozart, a sonata of Beethoven, then while Goethe was picking out some music with her violin under her arm, a surprising thing happened. Her furl, Edmund Furl, organist at St. Mary's, glided over from his easy interlude to in, into music of an extraordinary style, while a sort of shame-faced enjoyment showed upon his absent countenance. A burgeoning and blooming, a weaving and singing rose beneath his fingers, and then softly and dreamily at first, but ever clearer and clearer, there emerged an artistic counterpoint, the ancestral grandiose magnificent march motif, amounting to a climax, a complication, a transition, and at the resolution of the dominant, the violin chimed in, fortissimo, it was the overture of D. Meistersinger. Gerda Buttonbrook was impassioned wagonite, an impassioned wagonite, wag, wagnerite, sorry, but her furl was an equally impassioned opponent, so much so that in the beginning she had despaired of winning him over. On the day when she first laid some piano arrangements from Tristan on the music rack, he played some 25 beats and then sprung up from the musical stool to stride up and down the room with disgust painted upon his face. I cannot play that, my dear laddie. I am your most devoted servant, but I cannot. That is not music. Believe me, I have always flattered myself. I know something about music, but this is chaos. This is demagogy, blasphemy, insanity, madness. It is a perfumed fog shot through with lightning. It is the end of all honesty in art. I will not play it. 
and with the words he had thrown himself again on the stool, and with his Adam's apple working furiously up and down with coughs and sighs, had accomplished another twenty-five beats, but then he shut the piano and tried out, Oh, fee-fee, no, this is going too far. Forgive me, dear lady, if I speak frankly what I feel. You have honoured me for years and paid me for my service, and I am a man of modest means by but I must lay down my office, I assure you, if you drive me to it by asking me to play these atrocities. Look, the child sits there listening. Would you then utterly corrupt his soul? But let him gesture as furiously as he would. She brought him over, slowly, by easy stages, by persistent playing and persuasion. Furl, she would say, be reasonable. Take the thing calmly. You are put off by his original use of harmony. Beethoven seems to you so pure, clear, and natural by contrast, but remember how Beethoven himself affronted his contemporaries who were brought up in the old ways. And Bach, why good heaven, do you know how he was reproached for his want of melody and clearness? You talk about honesty, but what do you mean by honesty in art? Is it not the antithesis of hedonism? And if so, then that is what you have here, just as much as in Bach. I tell you, Furl, this music is less foreign to your inner self than you think. It is all juggling and sophistry, begging your pardon, he grumbled. But she was right, after all. The music was not so impossible as he thought at first. He never, it is true, quite reconciled himself to Tristan. <coughs> Excuse me. Though he eventually carried out Goethe's wish and made a very clear arrangement of the Liebestod for violin and piano, he was first won over by certain parts of Die Mistress-Singer, and slowly a love for this new art began to stir within him. He would not confess it. He was himself aghast at the fact and would petitiously deny it when the subject was mentioned, but after an, the old masters had had their due, Goethe no longer needed to urge him to respond to a more complex demand upon his virtuosity with an expression of shame-faced pleasure. He would glide into the weaving harmonies of motif. After the music, however, there would be a long explanation of the relation of his style of music, so that of the string sats. And one day, her furl admitted that while not personally interested in the theme, he saw himself obliged to add a chapter to his book on church music, the subject of which would be the application of the old key system to the church and folk music of which Richard Wagner. Hanno sat quite still, his small hands clasped round his knees, his mouth, as usual, a little twisted, and his as his left as his tongue felt out the hole in a back tooth. He watched his mother and her furl with large quiet eyes, and thus so early he became aware of music as an extraordinarily serious, important and profound in li- thing in life. He understood only now and then what they were saying, and the music itself was mostly far above his childish understanding, yet he came again and sat absorbed for hours, a feat which surely faith, love and reverence alone enabled him to perform. When only seven he began to repeat with one hand on the piano certain combinations of sound that made an impression on him. His mother watched him smiling, improved his chords, and showed him how certain tones would be necessary to carry one chord over into another, and his ear confirmed that what she told him. After Gerda Buddenbrook had watched her, little, her son a little, she decided that he must have piano lessons. I hardly think, she told her furl, that he is suited for solo work, and on the whole I am glad, for it is, has its bad side, apart from the dependence of the soloist upon his accompanist, which can be very serious too. If I did not have you, for instance, 
there is always the danger of yielding to more or less complete virtuosity. You see, I know whereof I speak. I tell you frankly that for the soloist, a high degree of ability is only the first step. The concentration on the tone and phrasing of the treble, which reduces the whole polyphony to something vague and indefinite in the consciousness, must surely spoil the feeling of for harmony, unless the person is more than usually gifted in the memory as well, which is most difficult to correct later on. I love my violin and I have accomplished a good deal with it, but to tell the truth I place the piano higher. When I'm, what I mean is this familiarity with the piano as much as summarizing the richest and most varied structures as an incomparable instrument for music, musical reproduction means for me a clearer, more intimate and comprehensive intercourse with music. Listen, Phil, I would like to have you take him, if you will be so good. I know there are two or three people here in the town who give lessons, women I think, but they are simply piano teachers. You know what I mean. I feel that it matters so little whether one is trained upon an instrument and so much whether one knows something about music. I depend upon you and you will see you will succeed with him. He has the Buttonbrook hand. The Buttonbrooks can all strike the ninths and tenths, only they have never set any store by it, she concluded laughing. And her Furl declared himself ready to undertake the lessons. From now on he came on Mondays as well as Wednesdays and gave little Hannah lessons while Gerda sat beside them. He went at it in an unusual way, for he felt that he owed more to his pupil's dumb and passionate zeal than merely to employ it in playing the piano a little. The first elementary difficulties were hardly got over when he began to theorise in a simple way with graphic illustrations and to give his pupil the foundations of the theory of harmony. And Hanno understood, for it was all only a confirmation of what he had always known. As far as possible, Herfell took into consideration the eager ambition of the child. He spent much thought upon the problem, how best to lighten the material load that weighed down the wings of his fancy. He did not demand too much finger dexterity or practice of scales. What he had in mind and soon achieved was a clear and lively grasp of the key system of Hanno's part, an inward, comprehensive understanding of its relationships out of which would come at no distant day, the quick eye for possible combinations, the intuitive mastery over the piano which would lead to improvisation and composition. He appreciated with a touching delicacy of feeling the spiritual needs of this young pupil, who had already heard so much and directed it towards the acquisition of a serious style. He would not disillusionize the deep solemnity of his mood by making him practice commonplaces. He gave him chorals to play and pointed out the laws controlling the development of one chord into another. Gerda, sitting by with her embroidery on her, or her book, just beyond the portieres, followed the course of the lessons. You outstrip all my expectations, she told her furl later on, but are you not going too fast? Aren't you getting too far ahead? Your methods seem to me eminently creative. He has already begun to try to improvise a little, but if the method is beyond him... If he hasn't enough gift, he will learn absolutely nothing. He has enough gift, her Phil said, and nodded. <coughs> Sometimes I look into his eyes and see so much lying there, but he holds his mouth tight shut. In later life, when his mouth will probably be shut even tighter, he must have some kind of outlet or way of speaking. She looked at him, at this square-built musician with the red-brown hair, the pouches under the eyes, the bushy moustache, and the inordinate Adam's apple, and then she put out her hand and said, Thank you, Phil. You mean well by him, and who knows yet, 
how much you are doing for him. Hanno's feeling for his teacher was one of the boundless gratitude and devotion. At school, he sat heavy and hopeless, unable despite strenuous coaching to understand his tables, but he grasped without effort all that her furl told him, and made it his own. If he could make more his own that which he had already owned before, Edmund Furl, like a stout angel in a tailcoat, took him in his arms every Monday afternoon and transported him above all his daily misery into the mild, sweet, grave, consoling kingdom of sound. The lessons sometimes took place at Herfell's own house, a roomy old gable dwelling full of cool passages and crannies in which the organist lived alone with an elderly housekeeper. Sometimes too, little Buttonbrook was allowed to sit up with the organist at the Sunday service in St. Mary's, which was quite a different matter from stopping below with the other people in the nave. High above the congregation, high above Pastor Pringsheim, in his pulpit, the two sat alone in the midst of a mighty tempest of rolling sound, which at once set them free from the earth and dominated them by its own power, and Hanno was sometimes blissfully permitted to help his master control the stops. When the choral was finished, Herr Furl would slowly lift his fingers from the keyboard so that only the bass and the fundamental would still be heard in lingering solemnity and after a meaningful pause, the well-modulated voice of Pastor Pringsham would rise up from under the sounding board in the pulpit. Then it happened not infrequently that her furl would quite simply begin to make fun of the preacher, his artificial enunciation, his long-exaggerated vows, his sighs, his crude transitions from sanctity to gloom. And I would laugh too, softly but with heartfelt glee, for those two up there were both of the opinion which neither of them expressed that the sermon was silly twaddle, and that the real service consisted in that which the pastor and his congregation regarded merely as a devotional accessory, namely the music. Her furl, in fact, had a constant grievance, in the small understanding there was for his accomplishments down there, among the senator's consul citizens and their families, and thus he liked to have his small pupil by him, to whom he could point out the extraordinary difficulties of the passages he had just played. He performed marvels of technique. He had composed a melody which was just the same read backwards and forward, and based upon it a fugue which was to be played crab fashion. But after performing this, nobody knows the difference, he said, and folded his hands in his lap with a dreary look, shaking his head hopelessly while Pastor Pringsham was delivering his sermon. He whispered to Hanno, That was a crab fashion imitation, Joanne. You don't know what that is yet. It is the imitation of a theme composed backwards instead of forwards, a very, very difficult thing. Later on I will show you what an imitation in the Stinge Sarts involves. As for the crab, I would never ask you to try that. It isn't necessary, but do not believe those who tell you that such things are trifles without any musical value. You will find the crab in musicians of all ages, but exercises like that are the scorn of the mediocre and the superficial musician. Humility, Hannah, humility is the feeling one should have. Don't forget it. On his eighth birthday, in April 15th, 1869, Hanno played before the assembled family a fantasy of his own composition. It was a simple affair, a motive entirely of his own invention, which he had slightly developed. When he showed it to her furl, the organist, of course, had some criticism to make. 
What sort of theatrical ending is that, Johan? It doesn't go with the rest of it. In the beginning, it is all pretty good. But why do you suddenly fall from B major into the 6-4 chord on the fourth note with a minor third? These are tricks. And your tremolo here, too. Where did you pick that up? I know, of course, you have been listening when I played certain things for your mother. Change the end, Charles, then it will be quite a clean little piece of work. But it appeared that Hanno laid the greatest stress precisely on this minor chord and this finale, and his mother was so very pleased with it that it remained as it was. She took her violin and played the upper part and varied it with runs in demi-semi-quavers that sounded gorgeous. Hanno kissed her out of sheer happiness, and they played it together to the family on the 15th of April. The Frau Consul, Frau Promoter Christian Clothilde Herr, and the Frau Consul Kroger Herr, and Frau Director Wienschink, and the Broad Street Brunbrooks and Therese Windbrot had all bidden to dinner at four o'clock with the senator and his wife in honour of Hannah's birthday. And now they sat in the salon and looked at the child perched on the musical stool in his sailor's suit and at the elegant foreign appearance of his mother made as she played a wonderful cantilena on the G-string and then, with profound virtuosity, developed a stream of purling, foaming cadences. The silver on the end of her bow gleamed in the gaslight. Hanno was pale with excitement and had hardly eaten any dinner, but now he forgot all else in his absorbed devotion to his task, which would, alas, be all over in ten minutes. The little malady he had invented was more harmonic than rhythmic in its structure. There was an extraordinary contrast between the simple primitive material which the child had at his command and the impressive, impassioned, almost over-refined method with which that material was employed. He brought out each leading note with a forward inclination of the little head. He sat far forward on the music stool and strove, by the use of both pedals, to give each a new harmony and emotional value. In truth, when Hanno concentrated upon an effect, the result was likely to be emotional rather than merely sentimental. He gave every simple harmonic device a special and mysterious significance by means of retardation and accentuation His surprising skill in effects was displayed in each chord, each new harmony by a sudden introduced pianismo, and he sat with lifted eyebrows swaying back and forth with the whole upper part of his body. Then came the finale, Hanno's beloved finale, which crowned the elevated simplicity of the whole piece. Soft and clear as a bell sounded the E minor chord, tremolo pianismo, amid the purling flowing notes of the violin. It swelled, it broadened, it slowly, slowly rose. Suddenly, in the fort, he introduced the discord C-sharp, which led back to the original key, and the Stradivarius ornamented it with its welling and singing. He dwelt on the dissonance until it became fortissimo. But he denied himself and his audience the resolution. He kept it back. What would it be, this resolution, this enchanting, satisfying absorption, into the B major chord, a joy beyond compare, a gratification of empowering sweetness, peace, bliss, the kingdom of heaven, only not yet, not yet, a moment more of striving, hesitation, suspense, that must become well-nigh intolerable in order to heighten the ultimate moment of joy, once more a last, a final tasting of his striving and yearning, this craving of the entire being, this last forcing of the will to deny oneself the fulfilment and the conclusion in the knowledge that joy when it comes, lasts only for the moment. The whole upper part of Hanno's little body straightened, his eyes grew larger, 
His closed lips trembled. He breathed short, spasmodic breaths through his nose. At last, at last, joy would no longer be denied. It came, it poured over him. He resisted no more. His muscles relaxed. His head sank weakly on his shoulder. His eyes closed, and a pathetic, almost an anguished smile of speechless rapture hovered about his mouth, while his tremolo, among the rippling and rustling runs from the violin, to which he now added runs in the bass, glided over the B into B major, swelled up suddenly into forte, and, after one brief resounding burst, broke off. It was impossible that all the effect which this had upon Hanno should pass over into his audience. Frau Pomanita, for instance, had not the slightest idea what it was all about, but she had seen the child smile, the rhythm of his body, the beloved little head swaying enraptured from side to side, and the sight had penetrated to the depths of her easily moved nature. How the child can play, oh, how he can play, she cried, hurrying to him, half weeping and folding him in her arms. Gerda, Tom, he will be a Meerbeer, a Mozart, a... As no third name of equal significance occurred to her, she confined herself to showering kisses on her nephew, who sat there still quite exhausted with an absent look in his eyes. That's enough, Tony, the senator said softly. Please don't put such ideas into the child's head. <coughs> Alright, that's the end of the chapter. Good chapter, I liked that. Maybe my favourite so far. Alright, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.